Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. We're beginning a new sermon series today. This is going to be a series of word studies. Uh, I'm not going to be preaching through a particular book of the Bible, but I'm going to be preaching through particular words from the Bible. Each sermon will focus on a, a different biblical word that describes some important aspect of our Christian walk. And we're going to consider words like faith, grace, justification, regeneration, election, and so on. And because each of these words describes some important aspect of our Christian walk, I'm calling this sermon series, These Words Are Meant for Walking. Now the word we're gonna be focusing on this morning is revelation. Our sermon text explains that if the Spirit of God had not revealed the things of God to us, then we would not be walking with God. We would actually think that the things of God are foolishness, so we would be very content to reject God. We would be very content to walk apart from God. Revelation, therefore, is essential to our ability to walk with God. If you and I are going to stay on the narrow path without turning to the left or to the right, then we're going to need the revelation of God that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. But before we jump into the details of our sermon text, let's define what revelation is. The Greek word apokalupto is what is used here in our sermon text and elsewhere in the scriptures. And this is, this is where we get the English word apocalypse, which means to reveal or to uncover. And the Greek word literally means to pull the lid off. If you pull the lid off of a pot that's uh, sitting on the stove, you can see what's cooking inside of it, right? Well, that's the idea of apocalypto. The revelation of God is him pulling the lid off of unknown things in this world so that we can see what's inside. In other words, God's revelation makes truth known to us. It's how he gives us certain knowledge of things that we would not know otherwise. In very simple terms, revelation is God speaking to mankind. He tells us who he is, what he has done in the past, what he's doing right now, uh, what he plans to do in the future. For example, concerning the past, he tells us how he created the world, judged the world, loved the world, and sent a son to redeem the world. Concerning the present, he tells us how he upholds all things by the word of his power. He tells us how he's working all things to the good of those who love him. He tells us how Jesus saves us to the utmost those who are coming to God through him since he always lives and make intercession for them. That's what is happening now. And we know that because of God's revelation. And concerning the future, God tells us how Jesus is going to return to judge this world. He tells us how the eternal new heavens and new earth um, have been made and prepared for those who are his people. And he tells us of the eternal lake of fire that he has prepared for those who are not his people. Moreover, 
God tells us what he thinks about us and how we ought to respond to him. He gives us direction and counsel and promises and warnings in his revelation. He teaches us his moral values. He gives us all the details for knowing the things that he approves of as well as the things that he disapproves of. And because God has given his Uh, giving us the revelation of himself, we're able to know God. He's not some distant, impersonal deity that we can only speculate must exist somewhere out there beyond the distant stars. We're able to know him. We're able to know him because he has pulled the lid off to reveal himself to us. In Acts 17.23, we read how the Athenians had built an altar to the unknown God. And the Apostle Paul corrected them on this matter by telling them that they really do know, they really do have knowledge of the one true God. Paul said that they can know him by looking at the creation because he's the God who created the world and everything in it. He's the one who gives life and breath to all things. He made from one blood every nation of men to dwell upon the face of this earth. And he commands them all to repent. Why? Paul goes on to say, because he has appointed a day on which God will judge this world. And so Paul is telling the Athenians that they can know all of this about God simply by observing his creation. Paul gives a very similar message in Romans 1. He writes in verses 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed, that's the word apocalypto, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what has been what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Notice how many of the verbs and adjectives in these three verses confirm the knowability of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Verse 18, what may be known of God is manifest, verse 19. For God has shown it to them, verse 19. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, verse 20. His invisible attributes are understood, verse 20. And then verse 20 concludes by saying that all of this is so clearly revealed to mankind that all people are without excuse. Nobody will be able to say on judgment day that they did not know who God is or what was required by him because it's been so clearly revealed to them in nature. It's been revealed from heaven by the things that are made, Paul writes. Psalm 19 verses one through three puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So in Psalm 19 and Romans 1 
uh, as well as the discourse that Paul had with the Athenians in Acts 17, we see that the creation reveals its creator. God is clearly known and seen by the things that are made, that he made. And this is evident to all people. There is no speech or language where the voice of creation testifying to the creator is not heard. There is no speech or language where the voice of creation testifying to the creator is not heard. Now, our sermon text is another passage that tells us about God's revelation. An obvious indication of this is that the word apocalypto appears in verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, we read in verse 10. Yet, when we consider what our sermon text is telling us about Revelation, one of the things that comes through loud and clear is that God does not give this revelation to everybody. God does not give this revelation to everybody. And that's different from the passages that we've already looked at. Psalm 19, Romans 1, and Acts 17 tells us that God gives his revelation to everyone. And everyone understands it. There's no speech or language where the voice of creation testifying to the creator is not heard. This is why all people are without excuse. So how do we reconcile the the universal revelation of God that's described in Psalm 19, Romans 1, and Acts 17 with the selective revelation that's described here in our sermon text? The answer has to do with the content of God's revelation. That is, the specific information that God is revealing. God reveals some information to all people, and he only reveals other information to some people. Our sermon text is dealing with the information God only reveals to some people. If you look back at verses six and seven, you'll see Paul contrasting two types of wisdom. He speaks about the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God. And he actually began this contrast back in verse four. That's where he wrote about human wisdom. He said that the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified was not preached with persuasive words of human wisdom, but it was preached in the power of the Spirit of God. And then in verse six, he repeats himself. He says that, the, that, that, that we speak wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. We, we speak, he goes on to say in verse seven, the wisdom of God. So he's contrasting these two wisdoms, the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of God. And then he makes the point in verse eight that if the rulers of this age had known the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of this age, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so here in our sermon text, Paul is establishing a sharp contrast between the divine wisdom of God and the human wisdom of this age. And he illustrates the implications of this contrast by showing that the type of wisdom a person walks in, you walk in, I walk in, the type of wisdom we walk in will lead us down drastically different paths. He had the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Roman soldiers, and Pontius Pilate known the wisdom of God, they would not have, uh, they, they would have known the true identity of Jesus and they would not have crucified him. But because they only knew the wisdom of this age, they ended up committing the absolute worst crime in all of human history, 
they crucified the Lord of glory. The reason the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Roman soldiers, and Pontius Pilate did not know the wisdom of God is because the wisdom of God had not been revealed to them. The wisdom of God is something that God does not reveal to all people. Look at verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. When we hear the word mystery, many of us probably think of something that's impossible to understand or explain. This is because in English, a mystery is some cryptic thing that that people have tried to understand, but are unable to understand. For example, we speak of the mystery of dark matter, because we know that, at least we think that dark matter is out there, and yet we can't really prove it or explain its existence. So it's a mystery. Or we speak of the mystery of Jimmy Hoffa. Right? We know he's dead, but how he died and where his body is located is a mystery. But in the Greek language, mystery has a slightly different meaning. It describes something that used to be unknown, but has been made known by revelation. Biblically speaking, a mystery is something that can only be made known by divine revelation. And God appoints the manner and time in which he makes it known to the people he chooses to make it known to. This biblical definition changes how we understand certain passages in the Bible. For example, in Ephesians 5, where Paul is writing about how a wife needs to submit to her husband and a husband needs to lovingly lay down his life for his wife, he concludes this instruction by writing in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, many of us read this and we think to ourselves, Paul is saying that nobody can really understand these things. A man and his wife have some vague correlation to Christ and the church, but Paul is saying that it's a great mystery. We can't understand it, according to Paul. Maybe we'll be able to understand it when we get to heaven, but for now it's a mystery. That's using the, the, the modern English definition of mystery. Yet that's not what Paul is saying. Uh, what he's actually saying is, I just explained to you the correlation that a man and his wife have with Christ in the church. In the past, nobody understood this. Nobody had any clue that there was such a correlation between marriage and Christ. Everybody thought that marriage was marriage. But now, because God has chosen to reveal this great truth to us, we get it. We understand the correlation. We see how our earthly marriages are a picture of Jesus Christ making his bride holy and without blemish. That's the biblical definition of mystery. It changes how we understand the passage. So coming back to our sermon text, Paul is saying that the wisdom of God contains the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, and this wisdom is a mystery. It's something that the Corinthians did not know or understand in the past, but God has appointed this particular time and this particular place 
for this truth of Jesus Christ to be made known to them. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. The reality is that it's impossible, utterly impossible for human beings, fallen human beings, to know this wisdom of God unless the Lord is pleased to reveal it to them. Paul makes this point in verse nine by quoting Isaiah 64, verse four. He writes, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit, he goes on to write in verse 10. But God has revealed them to us, not to everybody, Paul is saying. God has not revealed the secrets of his hidden wisdom to everyone, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit, it says in verse 10. As I said a few minutes ago, the type of revelation that's being described here in our sermon text is different than the type of revelation that's described in Psalm 19, Romans 1, and Acts 17. Theologians have given us two helpful terms for understanding the differences between these these two types of revelation. General revelation is that which God gives to all people. And special revelation is that which God only gives to some people. General revelation provides all people with the knowledge of God and his invisible attributes. This includes the attribute of, of uh, God's attribute of wrath against sin, as well as his power to administer justice, which means general revelation makes all people aware of their guilt and condemnation before our holy God. They are without excuse. They understand it, they get it, they know it. They have no excuse. General revelation speaks to all people through creation, as we've already seen, but it also speaks to all people through their conscience. That's part of general revelation as well. Romans uh, Romans 2 verse 15 says that when the Gentiles who do not have the law do the things that are required by the law, they quote unquote, show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, either accusing them or excusing them. Their conscience either accusing them or excusing them. What Paul is describing here, there in Romans 2.15 is part of God's general revelation. God has given all people a conscience which either accuses them or excuses them according to the moral law that God has written on their hearts. Of course, many people ignore their conscience. We're capable of doing that. In unrighteousness, many people suppress the truth of what their conscience is accusing them of. And in so doing, the voice of their conscience eventually becomes muted. This is what God is describing back in Romans 8.28 where he describes Uh, giving people over to a debased mind. If you've ever seen a person who can sin without any guilt, without any remorse for what they've done, that's a person who's been given over to a debased mind. Their conscience does not accuse them anymore. 
Not because they never had a conscience that accused them, but because God gave them over to a debased mind. Brothers and sisters, there is a deliberate path you must walk to be given over to a debased mind. It starts with suppressing your guilt. You commit a sin and your conscience immediately tells you that what you just did is wrong. And if you don't listen to your conscience and allow it to bring you to repentance, you'll end up suppressing your conscience, telling it to be quiet. And when you keep doing this, you'll eventually get what you asked for. The voice of your conscience will become quieter and quieter until God eventually silences your conscience completely, allowing you to pursue your sin without any distractions of a guilty conscience. That's an incredibly dangerous place to be. You don't want to find yourself in that category of people whom God has given over to a debased mind. You deliberately want to stop and make a U-turn if you're traveling in that direction. And the way you'll know that you're on the path to that dangerous place is by monitoring how loud the voice of your guilty conscience is. If you're If you are able to sin without hearing your conscience screaming at you, that's a problem. And so ask yourself, um, how loud is my conscience? Have you fallen into a pattern of sin where you're experiencing less guilt each time you commit that sin? Has it become easier for you to sin because your conscience has become quieter? These are indications that you're traveling the path that will eventually lead to being given over to a debased mind, where your conscience is becoming seared, and it's quieter and quieter until it no longer proclaims her guilt. Ephesians 4.19 speaks of those who are walking apart from God, and it describes them as being, quote, being past feeling, end quote. Being past feeling having, and then quote again, given themselves over to uncleanness, unquote. Now to be, to, to, to be past feeling is to no longer experience a guilty conscience. And to be given over, given themselves over to uncleanness means that they've made peace with the patterns of sin in their lives. That's not how you want to be, dear friends. That is not how you want to be. You want to be like Timothy, who's given to us as a great example of a faithful man. Paul described Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19 as a person who wages good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. To not wage good warfare with, uh, and, and to, to not be with faith and a good conscience will most certainly lead to the shipwreck of your faith. That's exactly what Paul goes on to say right after describing the admirable qualities of Timothy. He goes on to talk about Hymenaeus and Alexander. They suffered shipwreck of their faith. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.20 that they have been delivered over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Right? That, apparently that was the sin that they were engaged in, the habitual sin of which their conscience eventually stopped accusing them of, the sin of blaspheme. And so Paul says they had to be turned over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Special revelation is much more specific than general revelation. Whereas general revelation gives us the moral law of God written on our hearts, special revelation gives us a more detailed definition of God's moral law. 
And it also gives us God's ceremonial law, which is a shadow of the holiness that he requires of all of us, which is, of course, we know to be, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And yet Galatians 3.24 tells us that the ceremonial law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But you wouldn't know any of this if it was not for God's special revelation. God's special revelation, therefore, is where we learn of the promises of God, of the person and work of Jesus Christ, um, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ Jesus alone. We wouldn't know these things if it was not for special revelation. And over the course of God's unfolding plan of redemption, special revelation has been uh, given to select people in different ways. In the garden, God spoke face to face with Adam and Eve. That was special revelation. Of course, there was no fall, so there was no conversation at that point about redemption. But nevertheless, God was revealing things to Adam and Eve face to face. After the fall, under the old covenant, God spoke to select people through dreams and visions. At other times, he spoke to select people through angels and prophets. But under the new covenant, God's special revelation is given in Jesus Christ. Listen to what is written in Hebrews 1.1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. By his son. When you consider that the book of Hebrews is repetitively, cyclically, making the point that whatever happened under the old covenant was not as good as what's happening under the new covenant, we understand from verse 1, chapter 1, um, just uh, it, the, what I just read there from Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, that, that God used special revelation through the prophets and in other varieties of ways but now he gives a special revelation through the person of Jesus Christ, which is better, which is better. And this fits with the rest of the New Testament. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that Jesus is the word. John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 14.7 says that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, because according to Colossians 2.9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in the person of Jesus. So today, God communicates his special revelation through Jesus Christ. But how do you see Jesus since he's ascended into heaven? John 5 verse 46 and Luke 24 verse 27 tell us that every page of scripture is about Jesus. Every page of scripture is showing us Jesus. We see him by reading the Holy Scriptures. And let's not forget that 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's just another way of saying that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is the very Word of God. All Scripture is the Logos of God. Going back to John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is the Word, the Logos. And so don't, we don't look for God's special revelation in dreams and visions anymore. 
Nor do we look to angels to give us a private message. Nor do we look to modern day prophets for any new revelation, which means if anybody comes up to you and says that the Lord has given them a word of prophecy that they want to proclaim over you, unless that word of prophecy is a quotation or faithful exposition of the Holy Scriptures, you should reject their message. You should reject their message. Jude 3 says that the faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. And we know, coupled with Hebrews 1.1, that it's been delivered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. There's no new special revelation. Therefore, we can say that God's special revelation began in the Garden of Eden and ended in the apostolic age. Now, somebody might ask, does that mean that God doesn't speak anymore? Does this mean that over the past 19 centuries, God has not been speaking to people? No, that, that's not what it means. Uh, it's true that there has not been any new revelation since the apostolic age, but this doesn't mean that God is no longer speaking. God is still speaking to his people. His special revelation continues. He's just saying the same things that he's been saying ever since the apostolic age. Because the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints, and that happened in the apostolic age, God is pleased to continue repeating this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified until Christ comes again, until the second coming. Then we'll have some new revelation again. J.I. Packer made this point in an article that he wrote for InterVarsity Magazine. When we read or hear read or expounded the biblical record of what God said in the Old and New Testaments, in, in, in older New Testament times, we are as truly confronted by a word of revelation addressed by God to us and demanding a response from us as were the Jewish congregations who listened to Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Peter or Christ or the Gentile congregations who listened to the sermons of the Apostle Paul. So what does this mean for your Christian walk? It means that when you're looking for direction, you should look to the Holy Scriptures because that's where you will see Jesus Christ. That's where God continues to speak to his people today through his son. That's where he proclaims that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It's only in the name of Jesus Christ. And to walk in any other knowledge or wisdom is to be led astray from God. So what's the essential difference, uh, differences between general revelation and special revelation? we can boil it down to two things. First, general revelation carries no redemptive message. It gives no hint that God is gracious and merciful towards those who have broken his law. General revelation assures sinners of their condemnation, but it offers no hope of forgiveness. Or to put it in slightly different words, general revelation preaches the law, but not the gospel. The gospel is only made known through special revelation. And second,
difference, difference between these two forms of revelation is that anybody can understand general revelation, but only those to whom the Spirit of God dwells can understand special revelation. This is the main point of our sermon text, of course. Uh, look at verses 10 through 12. Speaking of the mysteries that God um, has revealed to those he has chosen to reveal them to, the hidden wisdom of God, we read, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we may, might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. And now look at verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Nor can he know them. He can't know them, because they're spiritually discerned. So when it comes to truly knowing and discerning and understanding God's special revelation, only those who have received the Holy Spirit can know the things of God. Those people who have not received the Holy Spirit cannot know the things of God. It's foolishness to them. Now notice the claim is not that the natural man is incapable of reading the Bible or that the natural man is incapable of hearing the gospel. No, the natural man can obviously read the Bible and he can repeat its content back to you if he's read it uh, with a good memory. He can tell you the stories of Adam and Noah and Moses and David. He can tell you how Israel was a chosen nation. He can tell you how the Pharisees and Sadducees were plotting against Jesus. And he can even tell you what the Bible says about the gospel. He can tell you that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that sinners are saved by grace through faith and not of works. So our sermon text is not telling us that people who have not received the Holy Spirit cannot know the special revelation of God at an intellectual level, but that they cannot know it at a spiritual level. In other words, they cannot believe it. They cannot receive the special revelation of God by faith. Why not? Because it says in verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Dear friends, if you hear the declaration of, of the gospel and you say to yourself, yeah, I know the drill. I've heard it a million times. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But really, what good is that going to do? How is that going to change anything? Can a silent prayer that I whisper in the privacy of my mind really change anything? If this is what you think, then you're hearing the gospel with natural ears but you're not hearing it with spiritual ears. And this is a reason to question whether you've received the Spirit of God. Or if you read the account of Jesus speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well, and you say to yourself, I understand the story I just read. I know that Jesus met an immoral woman and had a conversation with her, but I don't know how that's relevant to us today. 
I don't know how this has any significant meaning to me. It's just a story. If that's what you think, then you're reading with natural eyes. But you're not reading with spiritual eyes. This is a reason for questioning whether you've received a spirit of God. And if you attend our worship services every Sunday, but you find yourself saying, here we go again. It's always the same routine. We sing a few boring songs. We hear about how bad we are. We hear about how good Jesus is. We sit through a 45 minute sermon. We take communion. And then finally, we get to eat lunch and have some fun. If this is how you think about worship, then at best, at very best, you're worshiping like the Athenians worshiped. You're worshiping an unknown God. More likely, however, you're probably not worshiping at all. You're simply going through the motions. And this is reason for questioning whether you've received a spirit of God. On the flip side, if you hear the declaration of the gospel and you say to yourself, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. If this is what you believe, then you're hearing the special revelation of God with spiritual ears. This is reason to rejoice because it's an indication that you have received the Spirit of God. Or if you read the account of Jesus speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well and you say to yourself, I can see Jesus' compassionate heart for this immoral woman. I can see how tenderly he broke down her defenses and enabled her to see her need for the living water that he was offering for her, offering to her. That's what my Savior has done for me as well. He has come to me in my sinfulness. And he has shown me my need to drink of his living water so that I no longer thirst. If this is how you read the account of the Samaritan woman, then you're reading God's special revelation with spiritual eyes. This is a reason to rejoice because it's an indication that you have received the Spirit of God. And if you attend our worship services and you find yourself saying, I want to assemble together with the saints. I want to stir up love and good works within the body. I want to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace in my heart for the Lord. I want to have the word of God expose my sin so that I can repent of it. I want to hear the assurance of God's pardon from his word. I want to hear his word faithfully preached and applied to my life. I want to celebrate my union and communion with my Savior. And I want to hear the blessing of God pronounced over me because it brings comfort and peace to my soul. If this is how you worship, then you're worshiping in spirit and truth. You're comparing spiritual things with spiritual this is reason to rejoice because it's an indication that you've received the Spirit of God. Now, brothers and sisters, our sermon text shows us the great disparity that exists between the natural man and the spiritual man, those who have not received the Spirit of God and those who have. The natural man can only walk in the wisdom of this age, which, while the spiritual man is able to walk in the wisdom of God. 
And the the wisdom of this age is coming to nothing, we read in verse six. The wisdom of this age compels people to do very unwise and very sinful things. The wisdom of of this age causes people to think that crucifying the Lord of glory is a good thing. And the wisdom of this age makes people think that the wisdom of God is foolishness. Dear friends, if you are going to enter the narrow gate and walk with Jesus Christ for the remainder of your life, you need the Spirit of God. If you're unsure whether you've received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, then ask our Heavenly Father to send him to you. That's a legitimate request. Ask the heavenly, our Heavenly Father to send them to you. Ask our Heavenly Father to send you His Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Ask Him to give you the mind of Christ so that you may know the deep things of God and that you may walk in His wisdom, no longer the wisdom of this world, but that you may walk in the wisdom of God and ask Him to reveal to you the mysteries of His hidden wisdom that you may know the gospel and all the promises and all the blessings that come to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our our assurance of pardon today was very appropriate for this appeal. To seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you have not done that, do it now. Do it today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because you don't know if you're gonna find him tomorrow. You don't know you'll be here tomorrow. And call upon him while he is near, for he may grow weary and give you over to a debased mind. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.